I'm suffering from just a, a mild case of laryngitis. And so I'm going to probably a little bit more subdued than normal in my message this morning. So I'll allow you to add the oomph to it as you listen while I try to deliver at least a little energy to it through my voice. And um, <clears throat> I have to, they say confession is good for the soul. So let me start with a confession. I have this wonderful love-hate relationship with Christmas. And it's not just uh, based on the fact that you love like our HVAC system makes the Advent candles burn too fast, and so we have to switch around in the middle of them. And it's, it's not that kind of a hate relationship, and it's not the love relationship just because one of my primary gift languages is gift giving, and certainly Christmas is a wonderful time to do that. But it really boils down to this. <clears throat> I mean, how many pages do you have in your Bible? thousand maybe, covering the 66 books. And the birth of Jesus Christ is told in probably three pages out of that thousand. But somehow or another, every year in the life of the church, we stop for five complete weeks and seek to focus just on those three pages. And after 25 years, what in the world can you say no? I mean, say new about from those three pages. I mean, how many times can you preach about the angels and the manger and the donkeys and all the other kinds of stuff that goes in it? And so you feel like as you prepare a message to share it related to Christmas, that everybody's going to automatically have this sense of been there, done that. Why isn't he saying something new and interesting? And so you have this love-hate relationship with Christmas. The love part comes from the significance and the importance of the virgin birth. With all the wonderful things about Christianity. Without the virgin birth, there is no faith. None. If you don't have the virgin birth, where you have humanity and deity creating a unique life, the fully God, fully human, incarnate Son of God that we know as Jesus, you have no faith. If you don't have deity, if Jesus is just a kind of an ordinary fella who got to some kind of heights that the rest of us didn't, can't get to in terms of his wisdom that he's proclaimed, you really don't have the way, the truth, and the life, and a new way to get to the Father. Jesus is just one of a, mon- a bunch of incredible religious teachers and philosophers that we've seen over the centuries. He probably doesn't have any greater clue or authority to direct you to get to heaven than the guy who cuts your hair and talks to you about religion in the barbershop. And we've got no solutions for our sin that separates us from God. On the other end, if Jesus is God, in human flesh... And let me be pretty direct here. I mean, if Jesus could call the Pharisees fools and the prophets could use some strong terminology, I can do the same this morning in the name of God. I mean, you're an idiot if you're not paying attention to God, if Jesus really is God in human flesh. If if thinking about spiritual things, thinking about Christ, thinking about Christianity is just kind of a part-time hobby that somehow you squeeze into your schedule when it's convenient, you're an idiot. If God really has squeezed himself into human flesh and entered into our world. We're idiots if we're just playing around with the outcome of the virgin birth. So now that I get off there on my chest, I'd like to share with you a message this morning that flows out of one of those three pages that you find in the Scriptures that tell us about the story of Jesus being born. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 with me. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text on page 813. If you're using your own Bible, which I encourage you to do, you'll find... This on the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Many of you will recognize this story right away. Beginning with the 18th verse, after Matthew has very deliberately and extensively connected Jesus all the way back to Abraham and the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, which is a part of the Christmas message, is that God's 
is always faithful to his promises. He begins in the 18th verse with telling us about the human experience of the birth of Jesus Christ. He says the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, you have the word betrothed. This was a very formal arrangement in the days of Jesus where they would be connected for up to a year, considered man and wife, though unable to live together by custom. Since he had been, Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and that means he wanted to do what the law required him to do when you find out that your wife is pregnant without your help. Okay? So, in the fact that he was a compassionate guy, he didn't want to disgrace her publicly, he just decided to divorce her quietly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. I remember a brief kind of weekend getaway that Christina and I had back in 1987. We had travel. We had actually settled back in New England after being raised here and considering New England to be home. We had journeyed off to Texas for some schooling and we had come back and I was about six months into my first pastorate, if you could call it that, of this church plant down the South Shore in Hanover. And so after Thanksgiving, we decided to sneak off to my parents' cabin for Friday and Saturday just to get a little R&R before we headed into the Christmas season, our very first Christmas season as a pastor. In some ways, it was easier to preach Christmas back then when you're going through those sermons for the very first time. And so we went, we got off, and I I can, I I just have this vivid memory that was on Friday night, we had a fire going in the fireplace, and my parents' place on the lake, which they don't have anymore, but it was very close to the water. We had all the lights off in the house, and we had the floodlights going. And we literally just, they had windows that almost go from floor to ceiling at that point. And we just laid on the floor looking out at the lake, and, and snow was just gently falling. And we spent a couple of hours, as we had finally decided to begin our family, saying, what are we going to name our children? And we just explored names. And we kicked lots of names around. Some we were able to quickly kick out of the way. You know, sometimes you say, well, what about family names? And you think, well, I've got an Aunt Bertha. Nah, we're not going to do that. I got an Aunt Gertrude. Not doing that either. I got an Aunt Villa. Nah, we're not doing that. I even got an Uncle Millet. We're not doing that either. They called her grandmother, Muddy. We weren't doing that either. So you work through all these things, and well, I'm not sure we came to a firm conclusion that night, but certainly hovering around in the opportunities was one name, Joshua Paul, which we actually gave to our firstborn. And a girl's name was going to be Hope Marie, which we gave to the first church we had a chance to plant together after that time. We give a lot of thoughts to names. Most of the time for us today, right, we, we think about names Sometimes because of family connections, often just because we like the sound of them. Some of you like to stay with all J's, right? That's what the rats raised did, all five of them. Some of them like to stay with presidents. We have one of those too in our the Harrisons and Roosevelts and the Wilsons and Calvins and all those others that we have in the midst. And I know there's no Roosevelt. 
It was very important in the days of Christ. In fact, all through Hebrew history, the names are very significant. We see that, I mean, in, even in the days of Jesus. One of the big complaints about naming the child of Elizabeth, John, was that there was no child and there was nobody in their family named John. So why are you going to name him John? And we know him today as John the Baptist. So they named him after family. Sometimes it was after, it was a message they were trying to convey. Hosea, I mean, the English translation of one of his, his children's name is, there's no more hope. Trying to send a message to the name of his child. Even the name Jesus that we encounter in this text. God saves. God saves his people. It's a powerful name. And sometimes those names were an expression of character. As Esau was called Red. red. That's his name means red because he was hairy. It described who he was. Jacob was known as the supplanter, the one who grabs by the heel and try to pull himself by. And we have in the name in this text, Emmanuel. God is with us. And I'd like to spend our time today as we think about the significance of the virgin birth and how it's intimately connected to our understanding of the incarnation. Because, you know, I, we don't have a large tolerance anymore for doctrine. You know, we, yeah, we love the Bible studies that are going to encourage us on how to pray or, you know, have a better marriage or be a better parent or how to have real joy or peace or whatever. But, but just to break down and really study what the Bible teaches, that's just not as... as, as we're not just passionate about that anymore. But i got to tell you, if you don't have a right understanding of the doctrine of, of the Incarnation, you could lose your faith just like that. Because it's happened over and over again. Understanding who Jesus is. And in this name, God with us. We see all of the implications of the Incarnation. That God has broken into our world. Fully Himself, but fully one of us. Jesus, the God-man. John gives us a, a great perspective on what it means for Jesus to be the Emmanuel, the God with us. And if you have your Bibles, just turn over to John 1 with me. It's just a beginning of the fourth gospel, a little bit back to the right. If you're using our pew Bible, you're going to find our text on page 899. I want to use this text today to, to give us some clarity about the significance of the Emmanuel. Let me read verses 1 through 18 for us. They're just incredible. And... You're going to notice an amazing difference in perspective from the very beginning as we start to read this. Because the first three Gospels, Matthew and Luke in particular, because Mark doesn't even tell us about the birth of Christ at all, but they try to tell us about the humanity of Christ. And as you look at the life of Christ, they want the deity of Christ, the, the godness of Christ to be self-evident. And that's the perspective they take as those books flow. John's just the opposite. He wants to start out with an absolute understanding that the person that we're talking about, from the moment he draws his first breath in the manger, that this is God. And yet throughout the story, as he tells it in the book Gospel of John, he shows us that Jesus is fully human as well. So here we have this interesting switch in perspective. And with that, he gives us a full understanding of what it means that God has showed up in human flesh and become one of us and what it should mean to us as we think about the virgin birth, and the incarnation. God writes to us through the Apostle John and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, that idea there of word or logos that you see, in, which is a Greek word underneath that, is the, you know, the, the Greeks had this idea that, that all, of, all of creation was somehow animated. It was given life. It was governed and controlled by the sense of reason, this intelligence, if you will. And so they spoke of the logos as that. And so here, John 
captures that and says, you know what? What makes everything work is whom we know is the Son of God, the Word. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in Him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. That would have been nothing new in many ways to their culture. But he doesn't stop there. He says, there was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was created through him. Yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. He came to us. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. You could hear the echo of Jesus telling John, uh, telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. You have to be born of water and of the Spirit. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. Now things get really different. The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me has surpassed me, because he existed before me. Indeed, we all have received grace after grace from his fullness. For although the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. I think John would point out to us two major purposes of the Incarnation. Uh, To simplify it down is somewhat dangerous, but let's start with what John tells us in John 1. He would tell us that one of the reasons why Jesus came as the Emmanuel, God with us, one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary and impregnated her with a life that had never been before and would never be again, this one who's fully God and fully human, the reason why that happened is so that God could show us himself. There was a revelational value to the life of Jesus Christ. Certainly God had been revealing himself all the way along. I mean, the book of Hebrews tells us that. God has spoken in many ways and in many times over lots of years. He did it through prophets. He did it through events. He did it through circumstances. He did it through epiphanies where God would kind of show up and, and, you know, in a, in a pillar of fire or in a cloud or speak with a booming voice out of heaven. God, God reveals himself in lots of different ways, but in Jesus Christ it was unique. Because he was the exact representation of the Father, as it tells us in Hebrews. So much so that Jesus could look at Thomas and say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, what do we see in Jesus about God? Again, let's just use the text as our springboard. He tells us that we have seen, in him we see grace and truth. In Jesus Christ, God in human form, God has revealed fully the nature of his grace and the nature of his truth. What does that mean? I mean, let's kind of get out of the church talk. What does it mean that God has revealed to us his grace and truth? Let me suggest to you a couple things. One, as God God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ, and we see the fullness of his grace, what he shows to us is that, that his love for his creation, in particular the pinnacle of his creation, being you and I who are made in the image of God, that God has an endless love for us. There's no end to it. He's full 
of grace, in the life of Jesus Christ, we see the boundlessness, the depth, the extent of God's love for us. Because God Himself came down out of heaven, became one of us, and then experienced His wrath saved up for all of eternity against sin as He hung on the cross. Shows us God's love for us. But Jesus was not just showing us the fullness of God's grace. He also revealed to us the fullness of God's truth. Now what does that mean? Let me try to summarize it this way. The incarnation of Jesus Christ shows us the depth, the degree, the unswervingness, if you will, of God's hatred of sin. God has such a hatred, such a detest, detestedness towards sin that, he, that, that the only solution that he could find was to enter into our world and take it all on himself to deal with it. You know, some of the times or another, we, we get this idea in our own minds that we can just kind of play around with sin. You know, but one of the things that you should see in Christmas is how much God hates sin. I mean, the only reason he would send his son into the world, because this was a huge deal in dealing with this barrier that separated the eternal God from the creation that he so longed for was this issue of sin. And God, God had such a hatred for it. So it was such, a, it was such a, a, an eternally altering experience that he sent his own son into the world to deal with it. And if you and I aren't agitated about the sin in our own lives as we think about the message of Christmas, about the incarnation, we're not getting it. And... and we wrestle with that, don't we? Isn't it really hard to appreciate the significance of sin and the eternal design of God when we're thinking about a little baby wrapped up in swaddling clothes, rolling around in a manger? He's not only revealed himself to us, but there's another message here. And that is the message that Jesus came to bring life. Let me just read a couple of verses again for you. Verse 4, life was in him, and that life was the light of men. He came to his own, verse 11, and his own people who did not, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came to bring salvation. I mean, I don't know if that's, I don't think that's a surprise to any of you this morning, that Jesus came to bring salvation. And I pause in here because I want to say this as, as succinctly as I can without drawing it out. But we're idiots if we depend upon anything but our faith and the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in terms of our standing with God. I mean, part of the message of Christmas is that you and I, just like they were in the first generation when Mary and Joseph were trekking their way over to Bethlehem from Nazareth, that you and I are just as utterly hopeless without Jesus Christ. And yet, I sense among us that once we kind of get past our salvation experience, we, we realize that we've been forgiven and we have this new life in Christ or whatever, that we develop almost a sense of self-sufficiency beyond then. I have the ability to master the Word of God. I can, I can teach and use my words. I, you know, I know I have the capacity to be a good person out there in the world and God can see all my efforts and He's got to be pleased. And I've got to tell you, Part of the message of the Incarnation is that you and I are absolutely nuts if we trust in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ for our standing with God, whether it be in our salvation, whether it be in our discipleship, or whether it be in our glorification that awaits us at the return of Jesus Christ. Look for no other. Look for no other. Look to no other. You see, the Incarnation, God with us, 
is God's message that he wants to be in us. He's not just for us. He's not just with us, around us. God's in us. Let's pray together. God, I confess to you this morning that I sense more than normal my inadequacy to pierce through the over-familiarity we have with great eternal truths. And with that, we miss the point because we have this been there, done that kind of feeling that somehow or another, it's just kind of an out there and it doesn't really affect what my work life is going to be like tomorrow. We shrug it off. We don't engage it mentally, spiritually. God, I pray that your spirit would pick up where my inadequacies have left off. And we would understand the reality that you've come to us and that you don't want to just be with us, but you want to be in us as we totally surrender to the one who is both God and man, Jesus Christ. God, show us where we trust in anything besides our dependence upon you and eliminate it from our lives and then re- rebirth it as born of you that it might bring you glory. God, if there's any here this morning who aren't sure of their standing with the God who saves through Jesus Christ, whether or not that a salvation is their, is their possession through faith in Jesus Christ, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.